Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Armago podcast. Now in this week's episode I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Mark Beaumont. Mark's a huge name in the world of cycling, the world of adventure, the world of athletes. He's done some incredible trips. He's cycled around the world twice on his second attempt. He was the fastest ever man to cycle around the world. He cycled the length of the Americas, he cycled the length of Africa, he's been to the Arctic, he's rode across the Atlantic, you name it, he's done it. It's an absolute pleasure to be welcoming Mark Beaumont. One of the things that I really like about this episode is that he's able to apply a lot of the things that he's done in all his big adventures and apply them to everyday life. Um, so I really, really do hope you enjoy. Right, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today for the podcast. Um, the first question I've got for you today, um, you're obviously a massive inspiration to a lot of young people out there uh, in getting into sport. Would you consider yourself more of an athlete, an adventurer or a storyteller? Uh, good start. My goodness, I, I guess I'm all three. Um, in recent years, I've definitely been more of an athlete insofar as um, where I started was just wanderlust the want to go out there push myself you know as a 12 year old kid who pedaled across scotland age of 22 i pedaled around the planet and it's just got bigger and faster and more professional as the years have gone on but in recent years i've had more support with me i've been more caring about trying to really smash these ultra endurance records and it's been far less about where am i pitching my tent and how am i going to find enough food so i guess the adventure elements have become less as the years have gone on and the performance elements have become more and more focused. But there's a kid inside me that still wants to just go out and have fun. You know, last night I was doing a big adventure gravel ride in the dark in the Pentlands outside of Edinburgh. And, you know, it was raining. It was obviously dark. And I was just out there. We, you know, rode past three badgers, a fox and some owls. And it was just like 11 o'clock at night in the middle of the wilderness. And I don't do that because of my average speed or you know my power meter I do it because it puts a big smile on my face and it's good for my soul and I love sharing these stories so yeah and the but, stories certainly that go with it are very good I've been watching a lot of the uh the documentaries that you've done as you've been cycling around the world uh, and through Africa and America um there's a lot of people our age that are looking to go out there and, and do quite a lot of big adventures obviously it's quite difficult at the moment in the whole coronavirus situation you know myself for one I'm very keen after university to go and cycle around the world i don't, don't know if i was necessarily inspired by you from a, a young age or quite where that's come from um but likely you played a big part of that what's your kind of um you know how would you recommend people my sort of age at university to go about starting to prepare and plan for for a big event like like that well i mean the world is a, a, a big old place but um you know in a cultural sense there's more that connects us and divides us and so my starting point would be the things which stop people doing big adventures and travels is normally the fear of the unknown and understanding that, you know, knowledge is important, you know, trusting strangers is important. Getting out there and making your own mind up is important. Um, you know, we live in, in quite a divided world when it comes to the media and social media. So the more, the better informed you can be, the, the more of a tra traveler with an inquisitive mind, the more you're able to, to take on these things. So that's, a really important starting point. Um, when you go, when you're at school and university, uh, up to a point, there's a 
there's a real pressure to conform, especially through high school years, you know, in the playground politics, it's what, what you, your unique traits are often, are, are as likely to be picked on as they are, um, you know, uh, celebrated. And then when you graduate from education, you realize that your individual passions, your interests, the choices that you make are what sets you apart. And so you somehow need to graduate from that mindset of being the pupil to having the confidence, and it is confidence, the quiet confidence to step out and do the things that you're passionate about. When I graduated from Glasgow University with a perfectly useful economics and politics degree, I was in a class of 300 and everyone was talking about getting a graduate placement job and about basically becoming an accountant or some sort of economist and working in finance, you know, and there's such not peer pressure, but peer expectation, whether that comes from your friends, because you've got very few reference points in terms of what else you can do with that education. It could be parental pressure still at that age from, you know, what they expect you to do financial pressure there's there's just a ton of pressure societal pressure and ultimately pulling us all back to some form of normality whatever that is so the entrepreneurial risk to step out put yourself in the driving seat and do things a little bit differently i i was i didn't see myself as some sort of maverick some cavalier you know approach where i was trying to build a career out of this i just thought at that age i really passionately want to do something it's um it's not wholly supported by those around me, but, you know, including my girlfriend at the time, you know, really difficult personal conversations about what I was going to do after university. But I thought, what have I got to lose? You know, I'm, 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 I'm as poor as every other student. I've got a bit of student debt, you know, what's a bit more debt. Let's just, let's just cycle around the world. What have I got to lose? You know, now I'm 37 and, you know, I've got two kids and a couple of mortgages and about, you know, I don't have the same choices I had as a 22 year old to just sort of go for it. Um, and I don't think I'd have the career I now have if I hadn't built that habit of backing myself, taking calculated risks, building projects, getting people on board. So I can easily look back at my career over the last 15 years and it looks really almost inevitable. It looks professional. It looks sure-footed. It looks like one thing clearly led to the next and it's got bigger and bigger and bigger. That's You can only see a career like that looking back the way. And anyone that says that they planned a career like this is lying. So you've got to realize that we all face the same insecurities. We all have the same doubts. And, you know, everything you take on will be the biggest thing you've ever done. And then once you finish that, you can see the next horizon and the next horizon and the next horizon. So, you know, when I was 22 and I took what felt like a crazy risk to not go down that graduate placement scheme and to, to travel, I had no idea what opportunities that would give me. But you can't discover these things in the union. You can't discover these things when you're just chatting to your friends. You got to be in it. You got to be creating the story before some of those opportunities come to you. So people sit there going, "What is your five-year plan? If you don't know exactly where you're going to be, then you're going to fail." That's a complete lie. You know, best-laid plans and real happiness comes from being a healthy dose of obsession, getting stuck into your big ideas of what's in front of you, but then being open. Being, being completely open to the ideas that that and opportunities that that then brings to you. Mm-hmm. So when I set out around the world the first time, you know, it cost me 25 grand, which was a huge amount of money to raise. You know, I'd gone from pulling pints in a bar on a minimum wage job as a student 
to then having to raise £25,000 to take on that big dream. The BBC didn't pay me a penny, so I didn't get, there was there was no contract, I didn't get paid anything for that first documentary. I had to pay for the bike, I couldn't even get a sponsored bike, and I went around the world, and then when I finished, it became a four-part BBC One documentary series. I was offered a book deal and a talk tour of the length and breadth of the UK, and they came straight back and said, where do you want to go next, fully funded project? Mm. But I mean, I, you know, I backed myself for two years after university before I got that break. Whereas, you know, most of my friends by that point had had two years of a salaried corporate job. So, you know, there's no right or wrong, but I'm just saying to people, if they're, if they're wondering about how to take those first steps, it'll never feel right. It'll always be scary. You know, you'll always have to face your own insecurities and the hardest bit, face up to people around you. And family and friends, they almost care too much. So like you look to them for support, you look to them for sign off on all your great ideas, but ultimately they're scared that you're going to fail. And so whilst they think they're supporting you, they're often pulling you back. So you need to find friends. You need to find mentors in your life who are outside of your really close bubble. Mm. You know, parents, girlfriends, boyfriends, close friends are always going to be there but you need to you need people who you can turn to who empathize with your dreams who who are not emotionally connected to your success so that you can have those conversations about how you're going to do it and why uh, because people who are too close to you are either going to tell you what you want to hear and that's not impartial or they're going to sort of call caution on your plans and basically try and pull you back to stop seeing you taking on something big and ambitious and then failing. So I just want to call out the fact that it's super hard. Like yeah. when you're when you're when you're in your teenage years or your early 20s, you've got you've got incredible freedom and yet it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. And um you know making those first choices and it's ultimately about habit. As you go through your life, you want to be somebody who is in the habit of stepping forwards rather than stepping back. You know, backing yourself, not waiting for other people to test the water. And that is that is nothing about what you know. That's not about your knowledge. That is purely about how you see yourself in any given situation. You're just, you're in the driving seat. You're, you're, not, you're not relying on other people to make decisions for you. Now, one of the interesting things is motivation, right? There's quite a lot of young people that are perhaps uh, motivated by things that are driven through social media and that sort of thing that a lot of young people are growing up with. I know you had an interesting experience when you're out uh, doing your row across the Atlantic where you suddenly kind of realize perhaps you know, there are different things that are driving you to what you initially expected. You know, how could young people go about trying to find what really motivates them? Because, you know, it's very, very difficult with all the kind of constant drives coming through social media. Yeah, I mean, social media is sort of does two very different things. It, it gives you far wider reference points and ideas so it can be incredibly inspiring but by the same token it gives you the globe as a reference point for success so it'll always tell you the best sides of people's lives it'll always tell you the results rather than the hard work that went into it so it can be useful in terms of information but it sort of fast tracks the process to real success and making things personal and um I think at the heart of what you were asking about the Atlantic is the fact that you won't get it right first time. So, um, I mean, people say that, you know, they aspire to have made it 
whatever that means or the easy life and you know I've I've success defined by whatever you define success as but there's no no point in life ever where you get to a fixed point where you're like I'm done like I can now just sit back and I'm done I mean retirement is not a particularly healthy um you know headspace for most people unless they fill that with something which they're striving towards you know human nature we're best when we're striving so i think that that sort of myth about sort of having made it if you'd asked me about the things that mattered to me most when i was your age you know i achieved them within a couple of short years of university and then i was like well is that it it's never quite what you imagined and now you know i've got to 37 and you know the wall behind me is you know, scattered with Guinness World Records and World Firsts and the rest of it. And I've got a level of financial security. I've got a public profile, which allows me to go out and do things that I'm passionate about with charities, with education, with my work. You know, I enjoy what I do, but I'm still scared of failing. Like I'm still striving towards things which are different and meaningful in my life. So I think getting used to that idea that there's not a fixed point, you're not going to like leave. I remember at university, like the, the, one of my mates turned around and said, oh, I've got a graduate job with Aldi and I get like a 40 grand starting salary in a company car, which is an Audi. And we all went, wow, you've made it. And I'm like, well, that's that's based on the mindset of being a student. And the idea of having a 40 grand salary in a car is is quite Gucci. Whereas, you know, within a very short period of time, those are not reference points for success. You know, you could say that's being bought. So, um there's things that you'll do in life where you'll get there and you're like, ah, this is not why I expected it to be. The Atlantic was a great example. I thought I'd love the Atlantic. And I realized that it didn't give me why I do adventure. And I came back and said, right, I'm going to, I'm going to change course. I'm going to do things differently, but you've got to be in it to figure that out. You can't read it in a book. No, for sure. Now I know you touched upon, you know, the difficulty of some of these big challenges and, you know, so much respect for what you've done, particularly in your first cycle where you set out by yourself and headed out and, one of the things that I was watching in documentary is when you went through the Middle East uh, and, you know, you were adamant that you were going to stay on that bike and not let the police kind of tell you to come and jump on board with them. Um, you know, you're still quite a young chap at, the, at that age. How are you able to kind of stand up for what you really believed on this when, you know, there's so much risk and all that sort of thing going on around you? It's an interesting one because, you know, I was not, I'm not, I'm not a very extrovert person. Like I'm not, I'm not a fighter. I'm not somebody who will, you know, naturally be good in those dynamics, but, you know, fundamentally in that situation, the Guinness world record criteria meant that if I got in this, in the police patrol car, you know, my, my record attempt would be null and void. So, I mean, it was fundamentally important to the credibility and the viability of the record so I mean I talk about fear of failure I could not fight my ground you know so I've always been impressed with people who are really sort of in your face strong about things you know have argue in public and I'm not that guy you know if if you met me in the pub I'm I'm one of the quieter guys but I think that more comes from my homeschooling and the 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 early years that I had but but I know myself well enough to back myself in certain situations. And I think that's what matters. Um, I always think on a very personal level, like I'm somebody who's ended up spending my life on stage doing public events. And yet I'm, I'm actually a sort of quite an introvert, like not, not introverted in terms of like the way I'm socially with my friends, but if you, in a social dynamic, certainly sort of squaring up to the police is not something that comes naturally to me, but 
you know, when, when my values are threatened, when the identity of what I'm doing is threatened, you know, I, I, you know, I'll back myself, but I think most people would. I know you didn't take your camera equipment through when you went through the Middle East, but you did take it for large chunks of the rest of the trip. Um, and you were set out here to go and, you know, break the world record and no doubt go on a big adventure as well. Um, is there any reason why you chose to take the camera? Because obviously it's an extra weight on, on the bicycle, uh, which means, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to slow you down a bit. Is, is that just because you love telling stories because you love getting out there to people? No, when I got started in this game, I was an economist, you know, I was a, I was a student who didn't have any money who wanted to cycle around the planet. So for me, it was a very utilitarian sum. I was like, I need 25 grand to do it. I need to somehow give return on investment, earn media value for my sponsors. So I spent half a year telling anyone that would listen to me that I was going to get this whole thing filmed and it was going to be a great big profile story. And I spent the same time telling would be broadcasters that the whole thing was going to be funded and they just needed to take this great story and put it on telly. So I tried not to lie to anyone, but you know, I tried to give everyone the confidence that this was happening. You can't get sponsorship unless you somehow profile those sponsors mm. and you, you know, so you need those two parts of the puzzle. And for me, it was just the want to go out there and cycle around the planet. I had no ambition to build the career that I, well, did I have the ambition to build the career I've got? I didn't have any reference point for how it could be a career. I didn't know anyone who had built an entrepreneurial career straight out of university. I thought, well, I'll go back and work in finance afterwards. So it was only during that process where we, th with me thinking, well, I need to film this to, 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 to look after my sponsors. I worked with um, a great late filmmaker called David Pete, who really took me under his wing for the first six years of his career. And he really shared with me that passion for filmmaking and storytelling. And, you know, you live unique experiences and then you get to share that with hundreds of thousands of people. It's pretty cool. So he turned it from me uh, like this sort of utilitarian sum. I need to look after my sponsors to something I genuinely cared about. And I learned a lot about and self-firm at filming all those early documentaries. And then now being a TV presenter and doing all the filmmaking I do, you know, I love that. The storytelling is a huge part of it. I'm just about to publish my fifth book, but it wasn't there from the start. I hated writing essays at university and, you know, I had no knowledge or interest in filmmaking, but it, it, it became, has become a significant part of what I do to the point where I don't think I'd go on a journey now if I didn't have the opportunity to share it. Like I, I, I love that element as much, but it, it wasn't the reason I started it. I started it just to pay for the trips. Makes sense. And when you were cycling around, you know, you've cycled through so many different countries. I don't think I could ask this question to anyone more appropriately. Have you got any kind of countries that you'd love to go back to and cycle through again? Uh, and any that you really, really wouldn't want to go back to again? So, yeah, I've, I've traveled through about 130 uh, nations and territories. Um, some, some absolute highlights. Uh, Mongolia from my last cycle around the planet so i've cycled around uh the world twice uh, the second time was um at a much faster pace you know 78 days 14 hours to get around the planet um if i was to go back to one continent and explore more it would be africa um certain highlights there you know going through the the, the sahara and sudan um just extraordinary landscapes in the in the desert i, I love desert riding i mean the atacama desert in northern Chile. I was actually out um, doing another expedition in Chile just before lockdown to to free ride the world's highest volcano. 
which is called Ojos del Salado. So climbed to just shy of 7,000 meters with a bike on my back and then did a 300 kilometer descent through the desert to the Pacific. So yeah, I love the Atacama. Um, Botswana, like, you know, Elephant Highway, that stretch from the Zambezi River on the Zambian border down through northern Botswana where you've got elephants on the road and giraffes and mm. it's just awesome. There's only a few countries I've ever been to that I just don't particularly want to go back to and they're very few and far between. Um, I'm sure they've got great sides to them. I just didn't find them. Um, I didn't. I didn't love Kuwait, um, and uh, I had a pretty difficult time in in Nigeria. But um, I'm sure I could go back in a different context and have an amazing time. Mm. Now I don't want to. I don't like to think how many miles you've done on on the bike. Um, probably a, a huge number for sure. Um, but you know, I when I cycled down the River Rhine, I can remember uh, the kind of you're kind of brain drifts off into all sorts of different kind of thoughts and you sometimes come back to them and you're, you're almost daydreaming quite a lot of the time. Do you, do you get, find this yourself? You know, I had a different psychs on Josh Quigley. I don't know if you've heard of him, but you know, he was, I know, I know Josh well. You doing well. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he obviously did the North coast 500 recently and he's very much under the mindset of, he's just always loving it, always enjoying it. And you know, his mind, like from what he was saying, didn't seem to wander off a huge amount. Do you find your mind wanders off a lot when you cycle? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the last time I cycled around the world, I was 1,200 hours of time trialing. I was on the bike 16 hours a day, every single day for two and a half months. Yeah. Your, your mind goes everywhere. Um, sometimes you're totally geeked out on the numbers and the ride and what you're doing. Other times you're digging out, you know, long forgotten memories and, you know, reliving your past or thinking of the future and, you know, visualizing, you know, what will be. So the wonderful thing about bike riding, as you know, from your rides is, you know, everything else you do in life, you're juggling. There's lots of sort of unfinished to-do lists and, you know, days where you've got a dozen things going on. Whereas a bike ride is wonderfully simple. You know, you're, you're trying to fuel, hydrate, sleep and ride. You're on a journey where that process leaves you with quite a lot of time in your own head. So you can finish your thoughts. You do have time to explore your imagination. You do you are able to go to very different places and in a single day you can be high as a kite and rock bottom and you live through that psychological roller coaster so i mean i know josh well i i'm not sure he's being completely honest there because i know the battles he's faced yeah. i think um i think what he is trying to project is the fact that you've got to stay positive you've got to have grit you've got to have a, a real belief in yourself and you've got to, you've got to stay in the moment when you're on the bike you can only ride the road in front of you and you can easily freak yourself out by the duration of the journey you're going on but I, I think what Josh said there is missing an important point about the fact that you're allowed to have good days and bad days. You will have highs and lows. It's going to be tough. And I think it's important to call a spade a spade. You know, it's not like you're always just in a state of Zen and happiness on the bike because bike rides are tough. They're interesting. And they're, they're, they're places where you really can have the headspace to explore yourself, which is pretty unique in this day and age where we're constantly distracted by technology and other stuff going on. Mm, that's really interesting. You did two very different trips around the world. You obviously did your one that was uh, much more out there by yourself. And then you did your one uh, where it's really trying to break this record. Do you have a, you, you know, would you prefer like uh, either trip? Would you, you know, obviously very different, but which one would you say you prefer? 
Um, I'll never, I don't think I'll ever be able to replicate the raw emotions and memories of that first time around the world. There's something very special about the first time you do something on that scale. Mm. So, um, no, if I had to choose, I'd go back to the first one, you know, you know, straight out of university, just wide eyed, naive, just peddling through Iran, Pakistan, sleeping in mosques, you know, in the outback of Australia. I mean, it was raw and I was out there for half a year. I absolutely loved it. Um, but the second time around the world was made the first one look like kindergarten, you know, as an athlete, mm. it was much, 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 much harder. You know, I mean, I was averaging 240 miles a day every single day for two and a half months. So, you know, you cannot compare the physicality, the psychology, the, the, the cost, the logistics of the first and the second, but there's something very special about the first time you do something on that scale. And I had a lot more time to explore off the bike as well. So that journey was probably richer in the, in the true sense of the word. It wasn't just about me trying to figure out what my personal best was over an 18,000 mile race, but it was me trying to, um, yeah, just get by and meet people and figure out myself. Mm. And, you know, with both, you went through some very, very difficult phases, as you've already mentioned, um, for any kind of young people that are listening that are potentially going through a difficult phase themselves, how did you manage to pick up on these days that are really, really tough? And, you know, particularly, you know, in the day that you were hit by a car and you're robbed, you know, how are you able to pick up from these sort of days? Well, I think once you're in these journeys, um, you're so focused on the momentum and the daily tasks and getting through. When something goes wrong, you fight pretty hard to get back on track you know, you've already set up that framework for what success looks like each day. So it's not hard to be motivated when things go wrong to get back on track. Um, I always joke, you know, the only thing worse than going, you know, slowly is stopping. And, you know, into a headwind, you just crack on because a sense of momentum is your greatest friend. So once you've sort of set yourself a task, um, I think it's relatively straightforward when things go wrong to have that fight or flight. And, you know, I've been in a lot of tricky situations, as you say, like being run over and mugged or fallen off the bike and smashed my teeth and fractured my elbow. And, you know, you just get back on the bike and you ride and you look back after it and you think, well, how did I do that? But you do it because you've built success. You're doing well. And the more success you build, the higher you have to fall from. So you don't want to let yourself down. You don't want to give up on all that success you've built. You don't want to give up on the journey. So, you know, I'd broken the 18,000 miles down into four hour chunks the second time I raced around the planet, around the world in 80 days. And all you can do is ride four hours. You know, you can always ride another four hours. You don't ride 18,000 miles, you ride four hours. And, you know, you do you ride 16 hours a day, you get five hours sleep, you get up at half past three on the bike at four and repeat, full mm. stop. And if you give up on any one of those four hours, I can't be bothered, you know, I've got a headwind, I've got punctures, whatever, then you're giving up on the entire trip. And considering it's such an intrinsic part of your identity and purpose, I think it's human nature. You, you can't do things which are against your identity. If it's how you see yourself and how other people see you, you fight tooth and nail to live up to those, those values. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. So I don't want to take too, up too much time. I know you're a very, very busy man. We're going to need to wrap up soon um but i've got two last questions for you here um the first one is what's next for you well topsy-turvy world we live in I've just finished writing a book as i mentioned so that'll be published 
very shortly. Pretty excited about that. Um, so there'll be quite a lot of promotions around that. Over the winter, uh, it doesn't look like I'll be traveling and filming the way I usually would be. I'm still looking at some foreign trips, but they look curtailed. I've got ambitions to do things like race across America, possibly going out and doing some filming in Lebanon. Uh, but apart from that, you know, exploring a lot more closer to home. And, you know, it's amazing when you're forced to, you know, explore Scotland, you know, and England and parts which are that, that, that you see the familiar in you know unfamiliar ways you know and i i joked before about taking my mates for a 50k night ride last night and you know we found new trails we we explored things one of my lockdown projects was to run every single street in edinburgh and um you know it was awesome when you're forced to explore every cul-de-sac every road every roundabout of the city you live it's over 500 miles of running yet it's within three miles of where i live um you know projects like that have been the small silver linings from not being able to travel and film the way I normally would. Mm, brilliant. And the final question that we do at the end of each of these podcasts um, is we do a little game of two truths and one lie. Um, yeah. So I'll give you a little a minute if you need to have a little think about your two truths and one lie, uh, and then you can say them when you're ready. And, you're, and you've, have you got a guess? I'll be guessing, yeah. Okay. You, I'm very impressed with your research for this podcast, so I worry that you might know too much about me. Um, okay, so, uh, it's not a lie, my goodness, I should have, I should have had some warning for this one. Um, so, one truth, the, um, don't, don't say which one's the truth. I'll just say three things and you've got to guess which one's the lie. I'll be guessing the lie, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I, uh, Antarctica is the only continent I've not done an expedition on. Um, when I was a kid, a teenager, I was in the Air Cadets, uh, and that's when I first got an opportunity to, to, to fly into skydive. And the last truth is my first passion growing up was actually horse riding. So there we go. Two truths, one lie from Mark Beaumont. I do hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I thought it was really, really interesting hearing all these insights from Mark Beaumont and hearing about some of the incredible trips that he's done as well. Um, you can look up Mark Beaumont on YouTube where you'll find a lot of the documentaries that he's done. You can also read his book, uh, The Man Who Cycled the World. Uh, the man who cycled at the length of Americas um, and several others as well uh, that's it for this week we'll be back on next week Wednesday at 7pm for our next episode thank you very much